I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to make our way through this glorious Gospel. Matthew chapter 10, and we find ourselves this morning in verses 16 through 23. Before we look at the text, may I remind you that last week we examined God's model for ministry. Jesus, remember now, is sending out the twelve on their first assignment, and they need to understand what their mission is, what their message should be, and the methods that God would have them implement, and certainly their mandate for ministry. We notice that in verses 5 through 15. Now, today we will see the Lord speaking to them about the problems that they will encounter in ministry in verses 16 through 23. And then next week we will look at verses 20 through 24 through 42, where God will warn them and therefore warn us about the cost of discipleship. These are very practical sections of Scripture. We will glean many truths from them. And you will find that they will guide us as we serve the Lord. And friends, may I remind you before we look at the text this morning, that is why we are here to serve the Lord. This is the reason why we are alive. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, who, after explaining the glorious concept of justification by grace through faith alone, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he finally burst forth. Don't you remember with that great doxology of praise? And, and he told the people and therefore told all of us, told the people of that day and as well as all of us, that we are to, by the mercies of God, present ourselves, present our bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so this is why we exist, dear friends, to glorify God in serving him. And might I say from the outset, if this is not the center of gravity around which all of your life orbits, if this is not the dominating motivation of your life, if the service of the Lord is not the consuming priority of your everyday activity, then be ready. What you are about to hear is going to be extremely boring and it will not be relevant to you. For what you are about to hear certainly will be God's words of warning for those who are obedient to his command to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. These will be those people who understand that this is indeed their spiritual service of worship, And so, therefore, they will be engaged in the battle for truth. Saints that are living sacrifices will, therefore, shall we say, hang on every word they are about to hear. Well, the Lord knew what his apostles needed as they embarked upon their first mission. He knew that they were obviously inexperienced. And so we have now principles that he gave to them that are also principles that are relevant to every saint throughout History. Having said that, follow along as I read the text and then we will open it up and see what it has to say for us. Beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 10. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I would divide this section for you this morning into three, I believe, helpful and very practical categories. We will look at the perils of ministry. Secondly, the perspective of ministry. And thirdly, the power of ministry, the perils, perspective and power of ministry. Now, after reading the text, you might say, well, pastor, why are we to believe that these principles are relevant to us? And the answer is that Jesus' admonitions were sweeping prophecies of ministry issues that saints would face far beyond the scope of the apostolic period. It's important that you understand this before we look at the text. You see, the apostles here in verse 8 were commissioned to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. And yet, there is no record that they raised the dead during this first mission. Nor did they do that even while Jesus was still on earth. So how do you explain that? Nor do the apostles experience any major persecution this first trip out or any kind of suffering as Jesus predicted. They didn't experience that until after Pentecost. So how do you explain that? Well, the answer is simply this. Jesus is predicting things beyond the scope of their immediate ministries. There is a principle in hermeneutics, which is the science and the art of biblical interpretation, a principle that we call foreshortening, or sometimes it can be called telescoping, the foreshortening or the telescoping of future events. It's kind of like this. It's as though you were driving along and you look off in the distance and you see mountain peaks. And from a distance, it would appear that all of those peaks are right together. But as you approach those peaks, you began to see that there can be large and long valleys in between those peaks. And so, while they might look like equal distances from our perspective, because we can't see the valleys in between, in fact, from a distance, they look all the same. But in fact, the peak in the foreground will be biblically, if we want to think of it prophetically, it will be a partial fulfillment of something that will be fulfilled much later on at a later date in the future. One event, therefore, becomes the harbinger of the other, often a greater, more climactic event. For example, in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, we read for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Well, we all understood that that or understand that that happened when Jesus came as a baby. But it goes on to say, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened. 
It goes on to say there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That hasn't happened yet. We see often we see a prediction that will have both near or shall we say immediate fulfillment, but not complete fulfillment until a time yet future. In in Micah chapter five, verse two, there the spirit of God speaks through the prophet and he foretells Jesus birth in Bethlehem. But he also predicts his future role as he rules over Israel and over the entire earth at his second coming. And so there again, you see this telescoping or this foreshortening of future events. So with respect to Jesus words to the to the apostles, he's saying to them, first of all, I want you to preach to the lost house of Israel and they will do that up until Pentecost. And then after Pentecost, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will even begin to raise the dead. And you will see that later on in Scripture. Then with the future mountain peak of his second coming off in the distance, Jesus sees the entire church age that we're living in now actively engaged in ministry. And with the eye of omniscience, he looks ahead and he sees the suffering of the saints throughout redemptive history. Millions who would suffer and would die for the cause of Christ, even those martyrs that will die in the time of the great tribulation. So, indeed, the words of Jesus here in this text are germane for us today, for what was foreshadowed and partially fulfilled in the days of the apostles is continuing to be fulfilled today and ultimately will be fulfilled completely in the days to come. Now, having said that, let's look, first of all, at the perils of ministry that the Lord gives us. We see the first one here in the first part of verse 16. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep, of course, is a reference to those that follow Christ, the good shepherd. And wolves were always the great enemies and continue to be the great enemies of natural sheep who are, by nature, one of the most defenseless and dumbest of all domesticated animals, virtually unable to exist apart from the protection of a shepherd. And wolves, the concept of a wolf, of course, will conjure up images of of ferocious violence perpetrated against helpless creatures, a constant threat that was well understood by shepherds living in those days. You see, as we look at this text, the Lord is warning that these wolves will hate the sheep because they ultimately hate the shepherd. And with ministry, the hatred or I should say the hated shepherd sends his hated sheep into the world, which is actually the wolf's home turf. You might recall that earlier Jesus warned of false prophets in Matthew 7 and verse 15 who come to you in sheep's clothing. And you will recall that's a reference to they come to you in the attire of a shepherd. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other other words, they will disguise themselves as pastors. They will be predators in pulpits. The Pharisees certainly fit that bill of that day. And they will seduce ignorant sheep into following them and ultimately deceive them and lead them to be butchered by their treachery. That's why Paul reminded us in Romans 8:36 that we are sheep to be slaughtered as we suffer for Christ. But also many who are under the teaching of false teachers 
are slaughtered even by their false teachers. Paul warned the elders in in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, certainly Satan's opposition of Christ and all who belong to him is well documented in Scripture and throughout redemptive history. Satan has throughout history strategically positioned his demonically indoctrinated goons wherever the cause of Christ is being advanced. And through these men and through these women, the church is attacked. The father of lies and the kingdom of darkness comes into even evangelical circles and destroys these circles, these churches through false teaching. So relentlessly and often ingeniously, the enemy attempts to thwart the sovereign purposes of God. The father of lies deceives, especially with false doctrine and in turn ruins lives, ruins families, ruins churches. Well, in this context, the Lord reminds us of four kinds of wolves that will perpetrate this type of violence upon his people, upon his sheep. They are religious wolves, government wolves, family wolves and societal wolves. Let me explain this to you. In verse 17, we begin with the religious wolves. Notice he says in verse 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Beware, he says, be on guard, don't be naive. You see, Rome allowed the Jewish leaders of that day to settle many of their own disputes on their own without Roman intervention. And if someone in that day were to break the Mosaic law, they would or or even violate Jewish tradition, they would have to appear before the leaders of the synagogue. And there would be a tribunal to determine their fate. And often the the unfortunate soul who violated the law or even violated the traditions would receive 39 lashes with a whip, one lash less than what the Mosaic law required. And many times while this was occurring, scripture would be read while they're being punished. And even sometimes psalms would be sung. So the apostles were very aware of this type of danger. In fact, most Christian persecution, especially until about A.D. 70, when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem, most of the persecution that was inflicted upon Christians came from the hands of the Jews. And then after that, they were so decimated that very little persecution occurred from them and it began to occur much more through Rome and other Gentile people. And as you know, Satan works in the context of orderly systems. Therefore, he will work mainly in the context of churches and seminaries and Bible schools and any place where he can somehow perpetrate his false doctrine. And throughout history, we've seen that Religious persecutors, many who claim to be Christians, are of the worst sort. Persecution of Christians by Rome and later Roman Catholicism is absolutely legendary. And you add to that the demonic 
pagan religions down through the ages, especially that of Islam, and the numbers reach into the millions of those that have suffered for Christ. And friends, now, with the rise of ecumenism, where truth is sacrificed on the altar of tolerance, we see the apostate system of Antichrist beginning to rise. And we know that ultimately that will come to to fruition right before the Lord comes again his second time. Rooted in Satan's first attempt to establish a world religion and an earthly kingdom at the Tower of Babel, that great harlot church of Antichrist will someday rise again with enormous power during the time of the tribulation. In fact, in Revelation 17, verse 5, we read, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And it's interesting that all of this is occurring right now in the land of Iraq. And as we see things continue to mount prophetically, you will see more and more how the scriptures are being fulfilled in this most wicked, historically wicked center of our world. Friends, make no mistake about it. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ today is not Islam. It's not secular humanism. It is, in fact, other so-called Christians. There are apostate crowds that are gathered all over the United States today that know little, if anything, about the truth of the gospel of Christ. They are the tares among the wheat, people that will never enter the kingdom. And many times they, they call themselves evangelical. But they preach a wide gate and a broad way. These, of course, would be part of the religious wolves that the Lord warned about. But there's also, secondly, the government wolves, if you want to think of it that way. In verse 18, he says, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake as testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, apostles, they're going to hate you because they hate me. And friends, we must remember that when we experience persecution in our lives. You might recall the Apostle Paul when his name was still Saul and he was persecuting the Christians. And in Acts chapter nine, you will recall that uh, the text says that he was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But then in in the depths of his wicked oppression, the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ penetrated his darkness on the road to Damascus. And you will recall the Lord said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And and he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And yet after the power of regenerating grace transformed his life, his heart, his mind, his soul, he rejoiced in every opportunity he had to suffer for the cause of Christ and to share, according to Philippians 3.10, in the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And history records that during the age of the apostles, persecution continued to mount from Rome. Governments down through history hate Christianity because they hate Christ. May I remind you that genuine Christianity is always a threat, always a threat to godless governments where the populace must be controlled by some political elite. And we have that, frankly, even in our country. 
Think about it. The political elite, even in our day, create wicked, self-serving laws and enforce them with wicked, self-serving politicians and judges. They require us, for example, to pay exorbitant taxes so that we can line the pockets of the greedy and and the self-serving and self-absorbed politicians and bureaucrats. Um, They legalize the systematic killing of unborn babies. They give special rights to homosexuals. They require our schools to teach our children that somehow all matter has organized itself randomly and we are just evolving an irrational and an unscientific lie of evolution. We have a country where we appoint God-hating judges to serve as the moral conscience for an immoral culture. And as a result, a handful of people really dictate how we function in this country. But yet true biblical Christianity produces discernment, produces people with a worldview that opposes evil. Men and women who cannot be dominated by man and therefore they will ultimately be committed to serving the king of kings and lord of lords, citizens of another kingdom. And this is a great threat to many countries. Certainly this was the threat in that day with the apostles because Rome feared Rebellion from the slave population that had grown to be about 60 million. And as Christianity continued to grow, many of these slaves and many of the Romans began to realize that, hey, you know what? We're equal in Christ and this slavery thing is wicked. And Rome was very, very concerned about that. They were concerned about an uprising. And frankly, Christianity has always been a catalyst for freedom, both spiritually delivering people from the bondage of sin, but even socially delivering people from the bondage of tyranny. So Rome feared rebellion, and it was for that reason that they maligned Christians and they blamed them for every socioeconomic problem. (laughs) They called them traitors because they worshipped some other king, king and they were part of another kingdom and they were looking for a new earthly kingdom and they called them uh, uh, cannibals because they ate of the body of Christ and drank his blood and things like that. And frankly, we see this today, that Christianity is hated around the world. Most governments, even our own, simply tolerate true biblical Christianity. But they will go to every extreme to eliminate the God of the Bible from our schools, from our courts, from our governments, from public places and so on. So Jesus warned, you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I believe that's a reference to persecution that they will have to endure that will provide a context for a witness for Christ, a living testimony before wicked leaders that will profoundly impact them, a testimony that can be heard in the midst of persecution. Well, there's also family wolves that the Lord warns of in verse 21. He says, and brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And certainly family betrayal is undoubtedly the most painful. Like ravenous wolves, ungodly people can quickly turn on Christian family members whenever they perceive them to be a threat. Ungodly family members utterly loathe godliness in their midst. True Christians as you think about it, are a, are a testimony 
to Christ in a family. They are a living indictment against those that might be wicked within a family. And their Christ-like lives provide a stark contrast between the light of truth and the darkness of sin and hypocrisy. And therefore, that family member who is a Christian in the midst of an ungodly family will stir up guilt, the very guilt that these people have tried to suppress. Because you must remember, dear friends, that the ungodly spend every waking moment trying to justify their rebellion against God. And thus the penetrating light of truth that's manifested by godly saints exposes their sin and leaves them no place to hide. A foretaste of the great white throne judgment where everything will be stripped away and no one will be able to hide any place as they stand before the glory of God, their judge. Well, countless stories have been documented where parents and siblings and, and spouses and children have betrayed one another. They have maligned and slandered one another and even given their loved one over to the Christ-hating authorities to be imprisoned and killed. By the way, if you'll turn over to verse um, 34 of chapter 10, the Lord speaks to this more. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. But a sword, by the way, that's very important for you to remember, especially if you're in some type of a church context that's just trying to do everything they can to make everybody happy, to be seeker sensitive. Folks, the peace isn't going to come until the Prince of Peace comes. And so what we have here is the Lord saying, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And so there. The Lord speaks of the family wolves, but also there are wolves in society. In verse 22, he says, and you will be hated by all. By the way, that is not all without exception, meaning every single person everywhere, but all without distinction. You're going to be hated by all manner of people on account of my name. And certainly those who proclaim the gospel to our culture need no convincing of this. And friends, might I hasten to add here, I'm talking about the true gospel, not this this diluted gospel light that dominates most evangelical circles. Let me give you an example of this. You go on some major morning news program and present the gospel and see what kind of reaction you get. And I mean the true gospel. You go on and you tell them that for those who are unsaved, their greatest enemy is their own creator God. You tell them that Jesus said, if you do not repent, you will perish. You tell them that there is no salvation from sin and hell without repentance. You tell them that God is holy and that sin violates his holy law and that all have sinned, that we're born into sin and that every sin must be punished. You tell them that Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear God who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You tell them that. You tell them that you cannot save yourself, but you must be saved only on God's terms and that he pardons every sinner who genuinely, genuinely repents. 
And they say, well, what is sin? And you say it is a commitment to self-determination. It is a violation of the law of God. It is a defect in every human heart. You tell them that Jesus preached that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You tell them that real repentance recognizes the heinousness of sin in the heart and in humility agrees with God with respect to the verdict of guilty. And then in the horror of the reality of their sin, they smell the smoke of hell and they see the flames of hell. And then in desperation, they cry out for mercy and forgiveness. You tell them that that's what the gospel is. And you tell them that real repentance is literally a hatred of self and a love for Christ, a pleading for mercy and for forgiveness that is attained only by the blood of Jesus, who has satisfied, satisfied the wrath of a holy God. You tell that to a society and you see what type of reaction you get. That is the true gospel, dear friends. Not some seeker sensitive sermonette, some frivolous dribble about God having a wonderful plan for your life or come to Jesus so you can be healthy, wealthy and wise. You tell them that they will not escape the judgment of God if they neglect so great a salvation. Beloved, please hear me where the gospel is proclaimed. It is indeed the power of God unto salvation, but it is also the power of God unto damnation. For those who reject it. And such a message has historically incited people to violence against Christ and his witnesses who have preached it. And frankly, this is why so few preach it today, much less live it. Well, friends, these are the perils of ministry. But notice also the perspective of ministry. The Lord gives his apostles and therefore us two admonitions. He says, in verse 16, therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is an interesting phrase. Serpents of that day were a symbol of cunningness and of cleverness. And the word shrewd means to be wise or cunning or clever or cautious, to be crafty. And so he says here, therefore, be and the original language this is a, a, a term that uh, that, that basically says, have the attitude of or be in the state of being shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, be wise in how you deal with the wolves in this world. Be cunning as you preach truth to them. Be cautious as you love them for Christ's sake. Don't go charging in on them and citing them to violence. Be innocent as doves, he says. And of course, a dove is a, is, is a harmless, patient, kind, gentle, submissive type of a creature. That's the way we are to be. Not to be obnoxious and caustic in our gospel presentation, but to be discreet, if you will. To be like Christ Jesus, who is our model. In 1 Peter 2.23, we read of Christ that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Bottom line, our perspective in ministry needs to be that we are wise, but tender. But he also says in verse 23, giving us a second perspective, that they are to flee. In other words, avoid any unnecessary persecution. Verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. 
In other words, don't needlessly expose yourself to hostility and to persecution. You see, we have no obligation to deliberately remain in an environment where we might be imprisoned or where we might be killed. There is no shame in running from persecution. And frankly, the principle is basically this. When opposition reaches a point where you can no longer be effective in your ministry, move on. He goes on to warn, for truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I believe this to be a prophetic statement, including in part that time when he came in A.D. 70 in judgment against apostate Judaism, using the Romans to destroy them, a partial fulfillment of the eventual judgment that will occur at his second coming. Once again, a telescoping prophecy. So bottom line, dear friends, our perspective in ministry should be simply be wise, be humble and avoid unnecessary persecution. So we've seen the perils and the perspective of ministry. Finally, let's look at the power of ministry. And of course, the power source is going to be the Holy Spirit of God. Dear friends, what we were about to look at is so precious to me. This is a staggering testimony of the sufficiency of divine grace amidst the flames of persecution and suffering. And before we look at it, may I just say this, that if your life mimics the world, if people look at your life and they really cannot see any distinction between you and the world, then certainly you're going to avoid suffering for Christ. But dear friends, please hear this. If you are one of his children, you will suffer by the hand of Christ because you have placed yourself in the pathway of divine chastening and you are forfeiting blessing in your life. And because he loves you, he will discipline you. But for those who love the Lord and endeavor to serve him, inevitably, we're going to find ourselves in facing the wolves of this world. And that's why he says in verse 19. But when they deliver you up. Do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Oh, child of God, herein, herein is, is a promise of supernatural proportions. Namely, that in times of unbearable persecution, in times of unbearable pain and suffering, we are not going to be left alone. Nor will we be speechless. Because the indwelling Spirit of God vouches that He will be with us and speak on our behalf. How often the greatest sermons have been preached as the torch is being lit. I want to share with you a story as I do from time to time, from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I find myself at least monthly going and reading those stories to remind me not only of the power and the provision of the grace of God in such times, but also to remind me of just how good we have it. His name was Rawlings White. He was a fisherman in Scotland, an uneducated man, living in the 1500s, 
the reformers of that day, gospel preachers that would preach the five solas, as you see around this room, had by the spirit of God and the power of his spirit reached him with the gospel of Christ. And as a result, he had renounced the apostasy of Roman Catholicism. And he was following Christ and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And I'll read to you some of what we have with respect to his account. And as I do, what I want you to remember is the promise that Jesus gave his apostles that in these great times when you were delivered up, don't be anxious about what you're going to say, what you're going to do, because I'm going to be there. My spirit will speak through you. Fox speaks of Rawlings White as follows. Though the good man was altogether unlearned and withal very simple, yet it pleased God to remove him from error and idolatry to a knowledge of the truth through the blessed reformation in King Edward's reign. He had his son taught to read English and after the little boy could read pretty well, his father every night after supper, summer and winter, made the boy read a portion of the Holy Scriptures and now and then a part of some other good book. When he had continued in his profession for the space of five years, King Edward died. Upon whose decease, Queen Mary succeeded with her all with with her all kinds and with her all kinds of superstitions crept in. White was taken by the officers of the town as a man suspected of heresy, brought before the Bishop Landaff and committed to prison in Chepstow, and at last removed to the castle of Cardiff, where he continued for the space of one whole year. Being brought before the Bishop in his chapel, he counseled him by threats and promises. But as Rawlings would in no wise recant his opinions, the bishop told him plainly that he must proceed against him by the law and condemn him as a heretic. Before they proceeded to this extremity, the bishop proposed that prayer should be said for his conversion. This, said White, is like a godly bishop. And if you, your request be godly and right and you pray as you ought, no doubt God will hear you. Pray you, therefore, to your God and I will pray to my God. And after the bishop and his party had done praying, he asked Rawlings if he would now revoke. Quote, you find, said the latter, your prayer is not granted, for I remain the same and God will strengthen me in support of this truth. After this, the bishop tried what saying mass would do. But Rawlings called all the people to witness that he did not bow down to the host. Mass being ended, Rawlings was called for again, to whom the bishop used many persuasions. But the blessed man continued to steadf so steadfast in his former profession that the bishop's discourse was to no purpose. The bishop now caused the definitive sentence to be read, which being ended, Rawlings was carried again to Cardiff to a loathsome prison in the town called Cockmorell, where he passed his time in prayer and in the singing of psalms. In about three weeks, the order came from town for his execution. When he came to the place where his poor wife and children stood weeping, the sudden sight of them so pierced his heart that tears trickled down his face. 
being come to the altar of his sacrifice in going toward the stake, he fell down upon his knees and kissed the ground. And in rising again, a little earth sticking on his face, he said these words, earth unto earth and dust unto us dust. Thou art my mother and unto thee I shall return. When all things were ready. Directly over against the stake in the face of Rawlings White, there was a stand erected. Whereon stepped up a priest addressing himself to the people. But as he spoke of the Romish doctrines of the sacraments, Rawlings cried out, Ah, thou wicked hypocrite, dost thou presume to prove thy false doctrine by Scripture? Look in the next text that followeth. Did not Christ say, do this in remembrance of me? Then some that stood by cried out, put fire, set fire. Which being done, the straw and reeds cast up a great and sudden flame. In which flame this good man bathed his hands so long until such time as the sinews shrank and the fat dropped away. Saving that once he did, as it were, wipe his face with one of them. All this while, which was somewhat long, he cried with a loud voice, O oh Lord, receive my spirit. Until he could no longer open his mouth. At last, the extremity of the fire was so vehement against his legs that they were consumed almost before the rest of his body was hurt which made the whole body fall over the chains into the fire sooner than it would have done. Thus died this good old man for his testimony of God's truth and is now rewarded, no doubt, with the crown of eternal life. Oh, child of God, what power there is in ministry. When in the moment of our greatest weakness, by the power and the grace of the Spirit of God, we can manifest our greatest strength. And it is by his power of regeneration that we were first born again. And it is by the power of his might that we are kept in the beloved until that day. Even as Jesus said to his apostles in verse 22, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. What marvelous words the Lord gave his apostles that day. And friends, what joy there is in serving Jesus. And when you think about it, nothing else in life really matters. Everything else is eternally insignificant. The privilege far outweighs the perils when it comes to serving Christ. After reflecting upon these humbling realities, that of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I jotted down these thoughts and I trust that you share them with me. To serve thee, Lord? Oh, hush the thought. Never could a wretch like me be worthy of a martyr's cross, much less your company. To serve thee, Lord, with all my faults, grace alone could this afford. For all my best is but for naught, were it not for you, O Lord. To serve thee, Lord, oh, how can it be? What privilege now is mine 
You whose face I long to see, whose love is so sublime. To serve thee, Lord, oh yes, with joy. What undeserved delight. My God, my King, my Savior, Lord, I will with all my might. Let's pray. Father, it is indeed with great joy that we serve you and we serve your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of your spirit. Lord, we thank you for all the ways you demonstrate your love and your power in our lives, even in the midst of perilous times. Lord, I pray that these great truths will find lodging in our hearts and bear much fruit. Lord, I pray especially for those who are undoubtedly sitting here in these seats today, who know nothing of you as Savior, who have done nothing more than played some religious game. Lord, how I pray that somehow, by your power, you will bring such overwhelming convictions to their heart, that they will come running to you and cry out for the mercy and the grace that you will so quickly afford. Lord, I pray that today will be the day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth in Christ. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.